Welcome to the West and North London podcast, where we sit down each and every week to answer your big Arsenal questions. I'm Caleb. And I'm Tim. Tim, we are back after another action-packed week of the ups and downs of Arsenal. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely a roller coaster these days, isn't it? I I don't know what to expect anymore. I, I guess expect the unexpected these days. Yeah. You know, it would be nice to have some just kind of several weeks of nice, calm, relaxing, enjoyable days instead of the uh, lowest lows and the highest highs all in kind of a short couple day span. So, I think they call that consistency. Oh, is that what we need? Yes. They're dreadfully lacking in consistency. Uh, yeah. It's this thing that other teams have that we can't seem to figure out. Yeah. If only two smart podcasters talked about consistency over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> If only they listened to us. Yeah. Fire everybody. Hire us as everything. <laughs> well, we're here to talk more. If people would only listen to us, maybe <laughs> we could change the world. Um, so anyway, the last week has me wanting a drink. So let's let's talk about what we're drinking because I got something interesting this week. Oh, what do you got? I'm interested. I'm intrigued. I have a bottle from 2008. Ooh. A limited early release of a Stone Old Guardian barley wine style ale. Woo. Are you sure you're going to be able to stick with us the whole time? I'm guessing that's what, in the 12%? 11.26. Yeah. You're going <laughs> to enjoy the night. Yeah. It has aged well. It's it's smoother than I expected. Ah. It's um it's got a very uh I don't know if you can see. Yeah, that's like a it's a it's a lighter color than I was expecting. I was expecting a much darker char- chocolatey color cuz usually those things are like that. Yeah, this is more more of an amber color. Yeah. So I wasn't I was a little surprised when I poured it, but it tastes tastes really good. I'm actually yeah. surprised. I mean, barley wines are some of those uh, those types of uh, beers that when they're good, they're good, but they can just go really bad really quick. Totally. And yeah. with with the, that alcohol percentage, you could really just, it starts tasting like vodka with oatmeal sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I could see where it could go that way. I definitely won't drink the whole bottle. I think this is a, um, I might have to split this over a couple nights, try to recap it for tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it, finishing off a full bottle of barley wine. I imagine it's one of the bigger bottles too. It's not like you're sixteen. Oh yeah, um, it's it's a solid. Yeah, that's a that's a big solid bottle. I mean, I like Stone. I like their brewery. Yeah, uh, if you're ever down in San Diego, if you go to their their uh, brewery slash uh, gastro pub, they have good food there. It's really beautiful. It's it's definitely like kind of on the high end of of breweries anymore, but. Yeah, I enjoy their stuff. Oh, I, I could go for a trip to San Diego for some beer. That sounds good. Yeah, there's actually a bunch of good breweries down there. Oh, I'm trying to remember what the smaller one is, and it is complete. I'm completely blinking on it, but there's about three or four really good ones to go visit down there. Uh, who is it that does the um, Sculpin IPA? Oh, uh, God, what is the name? I forgot. I don't buy them anymore because they just they got bought out. They got bought uh, out, yeah. Uh, but what is, I, I can see the label. Uh, Ballast Point. 
Yes, that is exactly. Yeah. That's another San Diego brewery that's pretty good, or was. Yeah. I haven't yeah, had them I mean, in a long time myself. I'm 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 sure it's still really good. I just I have this thing about uh <laughs> about Imbev and uh, all those uh big conglomerates. Well, you blink and your favorite one gets snatched up. I mean, yeah. you might not even notice they're they're sneaky these days. And I've heard some insider baseball about what happens when those com- those companies get bought up and what happens to uh, recipes and where it gets actually brewed and all that fun stuff. So, oh yeah, you gotta you gotta outsource that to the big breweries so they can mass produce your micro brews. Exactly. It's a it's kind of like when a big corporation takes over a soccer club. <laughs> Weird. Uh, so, what are you drinking this week? I'm I'm also drinking kind of something off the beaten path. I'm doing a draft mead that Ooh, I picked up. Interesting. Yeah. It's wildflower semi dry, crisp and refreshing. Comes in at six point five, which I know is nothing for you, Mister Eleven Point Two, <laughs> but it's just, in the high side for me. And I'm just about to crack it right now. Hmm. Interesting, meaty. Yeah, that is definitely a mead. I brew meads. And this is actually really good for a mead. <laughs> it's better better than I do usually. Has a <laughs> much in your home crisp- brews. Yeah, a little bit crisper than my uh, my last brew that I did. Oh yeah, you you, yeah. you started one at the beginning of the pandemic, didn't you? Yeah, um, that one actually failed. That one did not go well at all. But I have some uh, uh, growlers that are bubbling away right now. I'm doing mm. some experiments. With them, I have like one that has some Indian spices that we got in Kenya, if you remember, nice. and then uh, have a one that's a ginger and Marion berry that I'm where I just threw in the whole Marion berries. So I'm I'm excited to see how that turned out. I don't think we've ever even mentioned Kenya on this podcast, but I'm saving that for like the summer when we have nothing else <laughs> to talk about. So stay I, tuned I, for that. <laughs> I found out where we can watch uh, Kenyan games live if we ever want to. Hey, I'd watch some Kenyan soccer. Why not? Yeah. I have a Kenyan national team jersey that I, I don't fit into, but I own one. <laughs> <laughs> That's the important part. Yeah. I still fit into my Gorma Mahal, I think it is, team jersey that I got. Knock nice. off, of course. Of course. All right. Well, let's move on to Tim's bit. It, it tickles me every time we talk about that. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it might have to stick. <laughs> All right. So for my Timbit this week, I, I love Daniel Ek's name being translated into Danny Oak, and it's what I'm going to be calling him from here on out. <laughs> so th- this first originated with me trying to go through Arsenal's history and find other Arsenal players with tree names in their last <laughs> name. Okay. But unfortunately, there isn't a lot. So I just found fun Arsenal names from most of them from fairly far back in Arsenal's history. Okay. So you probably don't know who they are. And then I'm going to ask you if you knew what position they do. And I'm not going to do like left back, right back, but like defense, midfield, forward, because some of them kind of exist before modern positions existed. And okay. then uh, as bonus points, giving me the decade they played-ish. Oh. Okay. What's what's the range? How far back are we going here? Uh there I will give a range of one started in eighteen ninety eight. <laughs> so I can't and, just say the nineties. I have to specify the eighteen nineties. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> okay. And then one of them uh and the, the most recent one finished their arsenal career in nineteen eighty six. So that's kind of the okay. span. Okay. 
and as I said, I just went for for fun names or for uh, you know things like that. So, and if they cross multiple decades, like one or two of them may, I will give you whatever decade they played in. Okay. Um. So let's start with Sydney Hoare. Sydney Hoare. <laughs> okay. Last name H O A R. Okay. Sydney Hoare. I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say he's a a, a midfielder from the 1960s. Nope. He's a forward from the 1920s. <laughs> I might do horrible at this. <laughs> horrible. Uh, 117 appearances. So, you know, a few. All right. Let's go with Tony Woodcock. Tony Woodcock. Mm. I'm going to say Defender. From the 80s. Well, you got it half right. You got the harder part right, which is he is from the 80s. And I really feel like his name just suggests defender, but it is he is a forward. Okay. Played for Arsenal from 82 to 86, 1982 to 86. Slightly before my time. I, yeah. I mean, I, I might have been able to catch a couple years of his, his tenure if I was watching soccer as a wee child. A wee babe. 169 appearances. All right, we got Bill Gooing. Bill Gooing. Bill Gooing. Okay. Um, I'm going with the 40s, and I'm going with midfielder. Nope. Unfortunately, he's a forward <laughs> from 1901 to 1905. <laughs> oh, man. I've just never really seen that name before. Gooing, G-O-O-I-N-G. Gooing. Interesting. I feel like I'm just throwing darts. <laughs> well, you got one decade, <laughs> right, which I'm pretty impressed with. All right. Uh, let's go with Ian Ure. I just thought that it was a weird name. U-R-E. He's Scottish, so maybe it's very common in Scotland. Ian Ure. Ure. Uh... I'm going to guess 40s again. I'm going to stick to that, and I'm going to go forward. No, he was a defender in the 60s, 1963 <sighs> to 69. I shouldn't be too hard on myself. This is a very no. challenging game. <laughs> to be honest, I've heard of none of these players before putting this list together, so I would not feel bad at all. I yeah, mean, if, you, if you're really out there and you're getting upset because I'm getting these wrong, please enlighten us come on our show and, and give oh, us yeah, national history because you clearly know more than me if you're getting any <laughs> of these right yeah and i'm picking ones that are i mean it's like 200 to 100 uh appearances so they've played and you can definitely tell that they're not like a lone player but it's not like they have the 600 games that like seaman has uh-huh. uh and then for finally finally we have john dick john <laughs> dick john dick um I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go seventies, and I'm gonna go midfield. Wrong on the 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 era. It's a uh, eighteen ninety eight to nineteen twelve. <laughs> okay, he was the uh, the I old was one. Way off. 
Uh, midfield, it's hard to say. He was a halfback, which if I remember formations back then, it must have been the pyramid shape where you had your goalie, two defenders, three. So it was like the reverse Christmas tree. Uh-huh. So I think a halfback during that era would be midfield. Please send it in and correct me. I'm trying to remember because the big switch was uh, uh, in the 30s with, uh, God, why am I forgetting his name? Chapman, Herbert Chapman of Arsenal, who changed it to the VM formation. So that was pre-VM formation. So I'm going to say midfield as a halfback. So half right. I'll take, I'll take what I can get. <laughs> so that's your quiz on fun Arsenal names. The rest of them are pretty straightforward. So I feel like I need to delve into deep Arsenal history, like early, early teams. Like that would be yeah. fascinating. I'm sure there's some books out there. So if you know of good books about old, old Arsenal, send send those recommendations our way. Because I would love to yeah, read them. I mean, I know. That. I've read a lot about the 1930s teams just in other like general books because the 1930s Arsenal team is probably one of the most influential like teams in soccer formations mm. under Herbert Chapman. Um, but I, like, yeah, there's a, there's a huge gap in my, my knowledge just cause there wasn't a lot going on. <laughs> so yeah, if you know any specific Arsenal books, that'd be awesome to send my way. I love reading books about soccer. Cool. Yeah. We need we need more more input on stuff we should be looking into and reading and brushing up on more Arsenal knowledge because clearly there's decades and decades of things we don't know. Yeah, maybe we should do like a Arsenal book slash movie corner so, during the summer when the mm. uh, when the games aren't coming fast and heavy. Yeah, I, I still need to seek out uh, that '89 movie. I. I no, they were streaming it at some point, and I don't know oh, yeah. if it still exists somewhere that I can watch it. But I'd like to. See I actually have the DVD of it. I should send it your way because I, when I joined, I was a member of Arsenal, like the club, and I got this uh, little package, and part of it was a DVD of the '89 uh, unbeaten. Oh no, you're not talking about the '89 unbeaten. You're talking about the '89 team, not the not the invincible team. Unbeaten. Yeah, yeah, I got gotcha, you, got gotcha. you. Sorry, numbers. Too many. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, now moving on from the past. Well, still talking about the more recent past now. Moving on into slight, slightly <laughs> closer to our current timeline here. Um, things happened in this last week. Arsenal things happened in this last week. We had uh, a first leg of the Europa League uh, semifinal against Villarreal. Villarreal. I always want to say Villarreal. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, Villarreal. And uh, it went worse than expected or better than expected. <laughs> what, do, uh, what, do you th- what do you think? What's your feeling coming out of that, that first leg? You know what? So I knew it was going to be a tough game. I always knew it was going to be a tough game. I didn't think it was going to be a walkover. What's funny is... I went ran the gambit of emotions during that game, which is I literally almost turned it off after the uh, the red card on Ceballos. I, w- I was already <laughs> mad at Ceballos. I thought he had a very poor game, yeah. and then him getting a red card was a cherry on top. And I I had the the I watched him on my Xbox. I had my Xbox controller like up to about to turn it off, and then I'm like, no, 
take a breath. It is only, it can only get better from here to be honest. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm glad I didn't. And I, I left the game with a, a sense of like relief. But then when I watched the replay, the extended, I watched the extended highlights before talking to you today. And I realized that it, it wasn't a good game by any measures. <laughs> and we pulled ourselves out of complete elimination but we're still under the the cost we're st- it's still not going to be an easy task in the next league mm-hmm. what, what, what's your thoughts on it um yeah that was, that was pretty pretty awful um i the the lineup was weird let's let's start at the beginning because i think that was the um maybe the strangest part of all this was the the lineup that was put out was very um, confusing. It, uh, I think, when it came out, I was like, "Where's Pepe actually going to play in this game?" Because it it came out, and I was like, "Maybe they're playing him up top. Um, maybe he is out in his normal position, and it's a false nine situation." And that's what it ended up being. Really, was uh, Neil Smith Rowe playing a, a false nine? Um, and it's bizarre trying to play without strikers. I don't know. I think after after watching the game, I was I was really frustrated with the idea that they would try to whip this thing out and play this new style, this new formation with only I think one other game under their belt where they actually tried that with William. I think against Man City and it's like, it feels like it's Arteta's go-to formation when he's trying to outsmart uh, a, a, a coach that he admires or, you know, like <laughs> feels like he has to pull out some tricks with. And it seems like it's great on paper and in theory and then when they went to play it, it was like it just didn't it didn't come come together. I, I didn't it didn't feel like there was any momentum going forward at all. And we've seen we've seen Arsenal flounder under different formation changes and and style changes like that. And I think that's that is a work in progress and not something that should have been deployed during this really important game so well, i mean it's city city does it all the time in fact they did it today in the champions league where they they'll mm-hmm. play a game without a striker and i think that's probably where he gets it is because guardioli does the same thing where he d- pulls us out when he's trying to be clever mm-hmm. and sometimes he is too guardioli himself is is too clever and it, it bites him uh the other thing being said is that man city has a much better quality of personnel oh absolutely than- than, than Arsenal does just at a, a very objective level. And yeah, I don't, I don't see as this is a, is working in any, <laughs> any real way. And it, it, it definitely did surprise me. And I mean, it showed we had what zero shots on goal in the first half in the first 60 minutes, I believe was the, the uh, tally when I was re- going through. Yeah, um, I don't know what the first. <clears throat> excuse me, I don't know what the first half um, stats were, but we ended the game with the same amount of attempts on goal as as Villarreal nine 
nine attempts. So where we started and where we ended, we're okay. But um, yeah, just it, it looked disjointed and especially, you know, giving up not one, but two, two, two goals in the first half. I was very nervous and it, there was, there were definitely players. I was just like, this is, we need to do a wholesale swap at the half and, and try again. Cause it just was not working. I think that there was a lot of frustration, both with um, Arteta's lineup uh, or formation selection, and then just the players, it, it, like who he deployed um, and not making changes early enough when it wasn't, when it clearly wasn't working. I think a lot of people um, were watching Ceballos, myself included, and you just could tell it was one of those games. And you can just tell with certain players, like you you know those games where you're watching Dava Louise and you're just like, this is going to be that game. And you're just waiting for that moment when all hell breaks loose and he has that, that moment of madness. And you could just feel it building with Ceballos in this game. Well, I mean, with Ceballos, I think that it's more common than not that it's one of those games. That's the thing that like <laughs> just bugs me. When I, I remember my biggest thing is I saw him on the starting sheet. And I'm like, how is he still getting starts? I, like it was, mm-hmm. it was like William earlier in the season. Like I just, I, I, maybe it's because he was playing in Spain and he thought maybe he was familiar with the opposition, that sort of thing. Although I don't think he played that many games <laughs> against Villarreal there uh, or recently. And uh I don't know. Like I, th- I thought Ceballos was pretty poor and I don't know if it's because Ceballos was so poor, but uh party didn't ha- impress me very much either. Both those goals. No. I, I'm not, I'm loath to say that it was his fault for either of those goals, but he definitely could have done a lot better on I- both those goals. Yeah. Agreed. I didn't think he had a great game either. I think he, um, yeah, it was definitely spread a little thin trying to, um, control that midfield. It just did not look, like those two were on the same page. Um, and yeah, I think the formation in front of them was just not really, they weren't able to link up like they should have. Um, really just, it was a frustrating game to watch in that first half. And I, I like you, I was ready to turn it off. It just was not, it's just not working. And I think that is the, um, it's the problem with Arteta really that we're we're having to watch him figure these things out in real time there is I mean when else is he going to learn these lessons except for in these big situations I mean every every young player we say you know you got to get him in into these tournaments you got to get young players as many minutes and as much exposure to big games as possible so that they um can develop and get resiliency and not get freaked out and nervous. And they get into these, um, these big games. And I think Arteta's kind of the same way, really. He's, he's a rookie coach who's maybe, um, at times in over his head. I think it's, uh, apparent when things aren't going right and he doesn't make a change. I think a lot of people were saying, you know, He's being he's being stubborn by not making changes and, and not doing what needs to be done to get take control of this game again. Um, and in contrast to Emery, who was frequently making changes at the half uh, as a when he was an Arsenal coach, you know, making changes at, at halftime to try to right the ship and and correct 
correct his strategy a little bit. And I think that it was, um, I, I appreciated that when, when Emery would do that and they would come out in the second half and, and be a better team. Um, well, while Arteta in this game didn't make big changes at the half, he did, the, the team did improve. I think they played a lot better in the second half. Um, they didn't have a ton to show for it, but they did get a really crucial, crucial away goal um, from a penalty. So it, it, you know, getting a goal from a penalty is is welcome because so so few of those get called for us. <laughs> I mean, we had one not called already in this game because yeah. of the uh, handball um, that was correctly uh, called out by VAR, but. You know, there's so many times where things don't go our way. So getting a, get a getting a penalty goal should not be frowned upon. We should take every every one of those we can get, really. Yeah, I mean, and at the end of the day, it was a pretty light foul on Sokka. I mean, it was a foul in the mm-hmm. box, as we always say. But it's one of those ones that we never get called for us that gets called against us all the time. Mm-hmm. So I was I was happy to, to see that we actually got the, the penalty called. Uh, I mean, Pepe's penalty went in, so you can't complain too much. Although I'm always a little nervous when they just shoot it right down the center there's always yeah a... with power i mean he 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 was con- shot with conviction there yeah um but I, I mean i think pepe for the most part had a pretty bright game i thought he played of of the teams i i don't think anyone really gets five out of five stars in my uh, my rating system but i think pepe uh, had a pretty bright game and for me the funniest thing was it wasn't a change that arteta made consciously but it, I thought once uh, once Ceballos left the game, we looked better. That's when we started getting those shots. That's you know when we started just really taking the game. And I don't know if it was that we kind of morphed into a more uh, more traditional formations or 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 what. But for what it's worth, maybe it's addition by subtraction. Yeah, I mean, just looking at the the match um, timeline here, it's interesting that Ceballos and uh, Party really had the bulk of the um they they, they kind of just got overran a little bit and um Ceballos leaving uh at the really pretty early on in the second half um while it was frustrating and just I think the most frustrating I can't talk the most frustrating aspect of it was I think everybody could just see it coming with with Ceballos. um and it was just oh you know to be expected by the 57th minute it was pretty pretty apparent that he was just not keeping up with the game and he was having to do things to try to um manage the midfield with party and then party got us a, a a yellow card like immediately after uh, Ceballos was sent off, so it's that was that, and that was for dissent about the uh, Ceballos because I mean at the end of the day the uh, the yellow was a very I, I like to call it a light yellow it was, it was mm, the second yellow yeah. wasn't wasn't the most egregious and it was what was I I think that party yellow was a little bit weird because really Ceballos was just laying into the ref and I thought Ceballos might get further <laughs> repercussions because Ceballos was not having it and party just kind of stood in the way and pushed Ceballos back and I think the the yellow card that party got was really just the ref mad at uh Ceballos but can't give him another yellow card so he just gave <laughs> the next Arsenal player yeah 
the next closest Arsenal player are yellow. So, I mean, hopefully, yeah. it won't come back to haunt us. I don't know. I should pay attention to these things, but I don't know if yellow card accumulation is a thing about if uh, mm. that sort of thing. But I haven't heard anyone talking about it, so I'm hoping not. But those things tend to rear their ugly heads when it's far too late. Yeah. Like you hear about it, like, oh, he's got four cards and the next one he's out. So, you know, <laughs> you hear that like the day of. Yeah, you're like, oh, God. Um, but, uh, you know, Odegaard was in the game, had an okay game, but was replaced by Martinelli in the 63rd, I think. Martinelli always brings a spark, and that was, that was to our benefit. And it wasn't too long after that... Uh, Saka got the the penalty, so that brought us back into it in the seventy third minute, and uh, Aubameyang made a made a return um, late in the game and had a decent decent look. Got slipped in late in the game, um, about eighty fifth minute. had a had a chance to shoot on goal, and it wasn't it was one of the few clear shots we had on goal in the whole game, and probably. Should have done a little better with it, but he got kind of got dragged wide a little a, a little too much to get um, to get where he wanted with that shot. I think he's a little bit better coming in on the other side and was far to the right side of the goal. So that was maybe not the ideal spot to take a shot, but it was one of our more dangerous shots and could have done wonders for our outlook going into the second half, but or the second leg. But I'll, I'll take I will take a two one scoreline. I will take that away goal and I'm, and feel pretty okay with that. I mean, away goals are just are vital, and I, I the nice thing is like I I I'm not confident we're going to keep a clean sheet at home. So it's nice to have at least one away goal in the bank. It does make it a a less intense. Uh, yeah, I mean, based on the first thirty to fifty minutes, I'm. I, I'm happy with with that result. It's 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 not the worst. It's better than a slap in the face. It's better going in with two nil down. That's just a death sentence. Mm, two nil down, absolutely. no away goals is just a death sentence. Uh, so, um, hopefully the uh, the person that got the red card for them is their cornerstone player Kapoe, and uh, uh, <laughs> their whole team falls apart without him. Is is hopeful. <laughs> I don't really know if that's true. Although he is one of the, he used to play for Watner, Watford. He is one of the teams or players that knows Arsenal ish. Yeah. I I saw something that um, Foyth, who had a pretty strong game against us in that game, he was out for the second leg. So that's, that's one, one other player. So couple players that we won't see in the second second leg um interesting to see how that plays out but i think we're you know we're going in the right direction for the second second leg as far as getting people back in i'm very uh hopeful i mean obviously abameyang is back in action so that's that's positive odegaard's gotten some more minutes uh over the weekend so he's looking better and better as he gets back into uh back into rhythm a little bit and it's sounding like Lacazette and uh, um, Kieran Tierney are it back in full training. So I'm, I'm pretty hopeful that they will play roles in this game on Thursday. I, I don't know if that's going to be starting or coming off the bench, but I think the, both of those players 
will help elevate this team a little bit more and give us a, a couple more options and hopefully don't force us into a situation where we have to play a false nine because that's ridiculous trying to do something like that on, on the home leg. And um, I think, yeah, I think the moral of this the story in this first first leg of this matchup is Arsenal have a hard enough time scoring goals with strikers on the on the field. So why the hell are we doing it without or yeah. trying to do it without? I, I mean, I know we've talked about it a little bit, but it's just like you can kind of see the the point, which is that our strength is our midfield right now. That you know you have all these players that are are very talented with Odegaard. Uh, uh, Smith Rowe and uh, Saka and then even Pepe who's kind of coming into form a little bit so you can see mm-hmm. why you would want him or want to do that but I just I'd rather just kind of put Pepe in a traditional striker role than than have you know the false nine and the the no no striker thing I this is I hate trying to do any comparisons with MLS but Watching the Sounders in the first three games of their season, it is amazing what can happen when you when you put players in positions where they can find success. Like, I think it's apples and oranges co- comparison. Don't get me wrong here, but I do think that our Arsenal lacks players to fit the roles that Arteta wants. And he's trying to fit square pegs in round holes a lot of the time. And this is a clear example of he does not have the personnel to do this sort of thing. And he still wants to try to do it and try to wring out every bit of technical ability out of these players. But the reality is that what Man City is trying to do and what Arsenal are trying to do are very far apart just based on the personnel that's available. I don't expect Emile Smith-Rowe to go out and um play that role to any degree close to what Man City is going to going to do like the the gulf between Emil Smithrow and Kevin De Bruyne as much as we want to compare them <laughs> they are way far apart as far as talent levels at least currently i don't i'm not yeah. saying that there's no chance for Emil Smithrow to get to that level but we're not there and trying to just throw that formation out there and see what happens. It's just not the time to do that. Um, but if you try to put, you know, put the right people in the right positions, like get a Martinelli out there. You have that available to you. Don't, don't try to make something happen. That's not going to happen. Use the tools that you do have that, you know, can be successful. Well, and you know, this can kind of lead us into the transition to the Newcastle game, which is that I'm hopeful that Martinelli does get to start in the, uh, the the next uh, leg of this uh, tie because I think Martinelli the time that he's shown over the la- or been on the field over the last two games is it's been a bright spot for me at least. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, you know that yeah we can we can jump right into that game. Um, you know, I'm again it's very difficult to compare Villarreal to Newcastle, <laughs> but. Um, it just looked a bit more cohesive. I think it was a a lineup and a strategy that it 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 just works. And I we don't need to reinvent the wheel right now. It's not the time this, this season to try to do that. I get that you know Arteta is constantly complaining about 
um, how he didn't get that preseason, how it's been just an endless run of shit, basically, that he's had to <laughs> deal with. Um, but, you know, it, it, given those uh, those circumstances, why, you know, why make it harder on yourself? Why make it harder on this team? If you want to have that that sort of strategy and you want to have tech, tactical flexibility, that's great. Develop that in the offseason. Get the personnel to do that. But look at what you have and be realistic about what you're you're trying to get out of it. It, it you don't have to be complicated. You don't have to be um, trying to outsmart the other coach. Just put the best players in their best positions and let them go out and do their job. That's all you have to do, really. I don't I don't think he has to overthink this stuff too much. If he wants to get to that point, I'm all for it. I think he has that. I, I, I'm grateful that we have a coach that is trying to reach for that level because there are plenty of these coaches that bounce around from team to team and they're, they're, you know, this, the Steve Bruce's of the world who just pop, you know, pop up and they're stable and they know how to do their job and they know what, what they can get out of a team. And, um, that is not where Arteta's at. He's still, he's, he's going to develop in a very, into a, a very good coach. I, I imagine giving him, giving him five years under his belt or a few more seasons, he can pull out these interesting tactical uh, switches and, and get some results. But we're just, we, we just have to push our way through these growing pains. And it's, it's, a, it's difficult when we're trying to get to this next level as a team and get to the Champions League and, and develop in, into the team we want to be. It's difficult to throw away games on these, um, the I, I don't know these tactical experiments. Yeah, call it. I mean, it's kind of weird that it wasn't reversed. I'd much rather him experiment in the Premier League right now mm-hmm. than I would in the uh, Europa League semifinal leg one. If you're going to try out a new tactic, or even try it out the the week before when we were playing, uh, uh, who did we play the week before? Why am I blanking on this? I probably should have looked this up, but I mean, you're you talking about in the Premier League or in the Premier League? Europa yeah. League? Oh, um, we had. Uh, well, was I'm, it? I'm, I'm, I absolutely no help. Was it the Everton game? <laughs> yes, Everton. There we go. Yeah, and oh, I blocked that one out of my mind. But, I mean, like, <laughs> really, I'd rather just experiment. That might even have been a good experiment because Everton's a good team, probably comparable to uh, a Villarreal team, and so mm-hmm. you could see how it would work. And you know. With, you know, four days in between that game, I, I doubt there was a lot of personnel changes that were going to happen. So I don't know. But uh, it's it's hard to take the, the Newcastle game that seriously, though, because Newcastle is really bad this year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they are not good. I don't like they had that. They had a, a great start to the year, which is the reason why they're still not in relegation <laughs> mode right now or in the yeah. relegation zone is because of the start to the year. But even then, it was like very lucky games that they got through. Uh, I've watched a couple of their games, and they're 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 garbage. They're trash. And so to to base a sorry if there's anyone who has soft spots for Newcastle that's listening, uh, but I, I'm not going to get go overboard on that on the Newcastle game of being super excited. I know you can only play whoever, but I'm the one thing I am going to take forward is that getting Obama Yang to get a goal and what a goal. That was a beautiful goal. Let's, I, we should take a minute just to pause and enjoy the beautiful things that happen in life. And that goal is just beautiful. 
Absolutely. I, I you know, I think both of the, both of Arsenal's goals were pretty, pretty solid. I yeah. El- El- getting, getting in on the goal scoring. I think that was his first um, Premier League goal ever or of the I season. I know it's the season. I'm, I'm, it may be ever. I know he scored most of his goals in Europa League, but I, I didn't know if that was his first ever Premier, Premier I mean, League the, the, goal or just the first of this season. The stat that they rolled out was first Premier League goal this this season was the uh, little mm. banner that they had under it when I was watching it. But I, it could be ever. I'm I'm I don't have a <laughs> comprehensive <laughs> knowledge mm-hmm. of El Nani's goal scoring. I. Uh, but yeah, so I, yeah, both of them were good. I mean, the first one came off a kind of mishit from Obama Yang mm-hmm. that landed right to El Nani, and he just he destroyed that ball, which is always nice to see a player just leather it. Um, so yeah, both those goals are good. I think it's good that uh, Obama Yang gets the taste for a goal because, as we know, strikers are streaky, and you know, scoring a goal means that likely he'll get another one or two going forward if he, if he makes the start. Which I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that he will. Yeah, yeah. I think Arsenal looked just really solid through that whole game, and I, that's, I guess, to be expected. But you know, coming off of a, um, a shaky first leg of that Europa League match, I, I felt like it was important to come out in this game and be dominant and and cohesive. And they definitely looked really good playing through the middle lots of connecting lots of passes they really just controlled the game very well and um created created chances and that's that's what what you should expect um playing this sort of team but um 19 attempts on goal to their five uh created some good shots off of set pieces had eight chances there so lots of um opportunities and uh yeah, the the setup to get I think it was Odegaard to um, Martinelli who just put a a perfect line drive right into Aubameyang's path, and it was not an easy finish. It, it was kind of one of those, um, you know, the cross was one of those heights that you could play it multiple ways, and I think <laughs> Aubameyang went for the flashy flashy finish over the easy header. Um, <laughs> So, you know, outstretched uh, leg, and I, I I felt my hamstring tighten up just watching him try to <laughs> get his leg high enough to curl that one in. So, Speaking of tight hamstrings. Beautiful. Oh, you have a transition with hamstrings. I, I am. Well, Delvis Luis. <laughs> what do you think about yeah. his, uh, his uh, pulled hamstring? Is it gonna, do you think he was going to start against uh, Villarreal, or was he... You know, he, he brings so much and you could just tell that it was, it, it was refreshing to have him back on the field. Honestly, I, it was, it's really sad that he's out again. Um, hopefully it's not for too long, but as a 34 year old, these sort of things tend to go longer than they might have a few years ago. Um, I know he's contemplating his next, um, career move. Cause I don't know that he'll be back with Arsenal next season um i saw something that said he might might uh be contemplating an mls move at some point <laughs> i think and that'd to, be horrible for him to move to mls to be honest it actually i thought you know 
considering the level of play that he's had with Arsenal over the last two seasons, I I could have I could have written him off before he came to Arsenal, and he's really um, found some good form. I mean, I, he's had some shaky shaky uh, outings, but I think overall he's been um, fairly solid and and comes up with stuff that that helps our team. Um, when you translate that into what he, what he could do for an MLS team, like I wouldn't necessarily want him on the Sounders, but there's probably quite a few teams who could benefit from his deep passing ability, because I think that's something that a lot of teams don't have, um, out of their back line like that's that's a hard commodity to come by well i mean i think if he was a midfielder it would be it'd be better to you know where you where you you know Pirlo did for uh uh what is it new york city i almost said mm. mm-hmm. where you you don't need to have a mobile person but i think his mobility would be an issue in the back line in mls more so than in premier league and it sounds funny to say but i think there's just some in some mls teams it is just speed merchant that really uh deal with it so i i'm, I'm not sure he'd be great and the, the record of old premier league defenders coming to mls is a very very poor one i mean you look True. at Lestra who came to the sounders you look at uh what's his name he went to portland uh it's just, it's just not a for whatever reason the leagues do not translate well well together and i really do think it has to do with teams just having so much pace running just directly at you in the uh in the mls yeah um but the pace of MLS is still so much different from watching like with the, with MLS kick, kicking back, uh, coming back this, uh, last few weeks, it's been really apparent to me how the pace of the game is very well, distinctly slower. Um, the pace, of the not game. to say that guys aren't fast, but I just feel like the overall pace of the game is not, not nearly to the speed of the premier league. The, yeah. The pace of the game overall. And I think that has to do with the, the passing and the type of passing that goes on mm-hmm. more than it does with the speed of the players. Yeah. I know it's not in vogue per se to have a three, three back, set up even though that's what the sounders are doing right now that's not that's not common in mls but if a team was willing to build a build that around dad louise i think he could find success in that sort of setup because it would allow him some coverage and you know putting a couple younger uh sets of legs around him and allowing him to do what he does best to just create from the back i think he could he could find a team that would, uh, if he could find a team that would do that, uh, that would be uh, probably his best case scenario. But I could easily see him going so anywhere else. I mean, I think that he's a name that could um, pop up a lot of different places all over the world. So um, maybe it's MLS, maybe not. But I, I, I'm if if this is it for him with Arsenal, I'm actually surprisingly sad to see him go. Not that I want to sign him for another season, but I think he he's put in a good shift with with arsenal over the past couple seasons agreed i and uh there, there's nothing official we might he might be around for i think he has two more years on his contract anyways or maybe just one he's, oh, was, it, was, it, was, it, was it a one and done okay yeah so you know, yeah very possible it's last year I'd, I'd actually just not like him to be signed for another year but that being said i've always been an apologist for for david Luis. I've, I've liked him quite a bit i know on this pro- podcast i've talked quite a bit that I think his passing and some of his plus sides make up for some of his crazy red cards. Plus, I like a little. I, I like a little play, a player with a little bit of, I don't know, danger. I've always uh, loved Mad Jens Lehmann as a keeper, and he mm-hmm. he had that same little, uh, I don't know, twitch. 
So, yeah, I think, you know, his legacy in my mind won't be a negative one by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, he's just, he's so well-liked. And I think that that sort of locker room presence, that winning mentality, I think a lot of teams are looking for those sorts of players to um, kind of flesh out their their locker room. Because even if you're not getting regular, in the regular starting lineup, you can definitely add something to a team just by being there and coaching other players up. And he's definitely known for that trip. Um reaching out to younger players and taking them under his wing. So I think that's, that's something Arteta has called out and has appreciated um, of Luis in, in his time with Arsenal. So wherever he goes next, I think that's going to be a, a, a big selling point is all his experience. Yeah. And uh, well, after that talk about the Newcastle game, do you have anything to say at all about the, uh, the West Brom game coming up? I'll take three more points. Yeah. I mean, I think it really should be three more points. I watched the uh, West Brom um, uh, Wolves game last week. Was it last Monday? Gosh, Sunday. The days blur together still. Um, and uh, it, it was a 1-1 draw, but it, it, Wolves was all over him that entire game. And it was Wolves finishing that really let him down, which mm. could be very nervous for us, <laughs> as in our finishing hasn't been consistent recently. But really, I all my focus is on Thursday's game. I I've given up the I had given up the league a while back, and I'm I really as long I I at this point I don't. It's possible, but I don't see us catching Spurs. So that would be the only like kind of goal I have in the league this year left. Mm. And even that is less likely. But yeah, three points is three points. Um, I'd just rather put all our eggs into the Europa League basket. Yeah, I think the West Brom game is going to be, um, well, who knows? I mean, I who knows what our outlook is by the time we get to the West Brom game. It, we, it, it, Thursday is so huge. I'm, I, I'm already feeling nervous <laughs> about it, and I'm, I'm glad it's going to be at home. But, um, gosh, it just I hate having our whole season hinge on this one game because after that, if we don't win on Thursday – we're not going to have too much to talk about. I mean, these are just going to be dead river games for the rest of the season. That's going to be pretty sad. It's kind of weird to be in that situation, really, if you think about it. We we haven't been so far out of the conversation for Europe and Champions League and really just had nothing to play for. And I, I don't really remember a year where we had literally nothing to play for this, this uh, early on in the season. Yeah. Do I mean... If we win this thing, I think it's pretty, pretty well, well, <clears throat> I don't want to count, count on anything. I don't even want to talk too much about the next, next round. So, um, but if we ended up against Man United in a final before the end of this or at the end of this, uh, tournament, I, I wouldn't hate that. And I wouldn't, even if we don't win the thing, I'd feel pretty good about getting to a final, getting to a final again, um, but I just want to like at least have something to play for. At least, even if we can't win the whole thing, I just want to feel like we we still have something to look forward to. Yeah. If we get knocked out now, I'm just it's going to be a depressing end of the season. <laughs> exactly, because then uh, then the games really feel like a Europa League or like a European Super League, where all the games don't matter and yeah, <laughs> it's just teams playing teams. Everybody's just out to collect a paycheck. Yeah. 
It, it does make you, it's, it, it's interesting. Cause I, I've have friends that follow. I have a lot of friends that follow uh, West Ham. Uh, I have a, a couple good friends that uh, follow Everton and it's these teams that really for a lot of seasons, this is their, their case. So it's, it's, it's interesting to really learn how it feels to be in their shoes. It's a, a place right. I never wanted to be, but I'm trying to take the positives out of this. And it's, it's interesting to see how mid table obscurity feels. Well, I think that's a good place to transition uh, to uh, a break and then our second half because there is a question in here about what if we didn't have all this? What if we didn't have European soccer? I mean, what is that? What does that mean for Arsenal going forward if that if that comes to fruition? So um, we'll talk about that uh, right after this short break. Welcome back from the break. We've got some good questions from you this week. We even have a voicemail, which I always love. So that's that's my favorite thing. If you if you all want to just like call in your questions rather than writing, I would love that. Let's make it a call in show. Me too. Please, <laughs> please do. I love having an audio question. Then we get to hear what you sound like. Yeah. Um, first question coming from Riley Johnson. Is it worth it for us to miss European football if that means the club is worth less and might might make the Daniel Ek bid worth it to the Cronkies? What do you think, Tim? Is it is is that the reason we should be missing Europa League? <laughs> well, it, it kind of reminds me of a. I don't follow NBA, so please, uh, if I'm wrong about how this happens, I apologize. But it kind of sounds like the idea is like how NBA teams will. Uh, throw away their season just so they can get the first round pick that used to happen a lot. I think they changed that recently. Um, yeah. I don't think it works that way. <laughs> like uh, with this, I think, I, you know, since we're on it and I'm sure we have another question about it. Uh, the Danny Oak bid uh, is, is pretty stable at what it is. So it's, you know, right around the three or four uh, uh, billion dollars. Such a weird, that's a lot of money. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I find it hard for the, the Cronkies to, to take that right away. And I saw a lot of, you know, chatter online uh, about how, you know, really the Cronkies are waiting for the next TV deal, which comes up in two years, if I remember correctly. Mm. And that that's yeah. going to really push up the value of the club quite a bit. And that they, the Cronkies can really, unless they get knocked out of the Premier League, the Cronkies in the next two years, the Cronkies can really just kind of sit and wait. And you see, when you're talking about the bid, you see, uh, you know, Thierry Henry came out with a kind of an interview where he was talking about it. And he really says that it, it's a long-term bid, that it's not going to happen anytime soon. And us missing the European football next year i i don't see it as anything but a negative for the fans and i don't think it really changed i don't think again a statement i've said all the time on this podcast i don't think the Cronkies care as long as the the money's coming in uh and europa league money uh, champions league money actually might be you know worth it for them to care but you know really europa league they don't isn't it's a drop in the bucket um so yeah, I, I just I I don't think it benefits anybody to to kind of tank it and not get into Europa League or into European football next year. 
Yeah, I I don't see that as being a guarantee. We we really don't have any insight into the thinking behind the Cronkies' ownership of the team. Like, what are they trying to get out of it? Um, clearly, there is no. Um, it is, it is a piece of a portfolio to them of of, of sports teams, and of course you want. Um, you want sports teams to have success. I mean, you don't want to have a portfolio of crap teams that, that don't win anything. You kind of want them all to be at least mediocre, (laughs) Um, you know, a portfolio of mediocre teams that, that don't win everything, but aren't at the bottom of the uh, table every season um, looks a lot better and makes you more money. Uh, Especially when it comes to sponsorships and those things that are, um, outside of the game a little bit you you need success to make that extra money um so i don't think you can have a, a sponsor like em- uh, emirates airlines or rwanda or <laughs> whoever it is you know you don't you don't get big money from those sponsors unless you're finding success somewhere because they want to be on the biggest they want to be in front of eyeballs and if you're not, if people aren't watching your team, you're not able to extract that advertising money, that sponsorship money. And that's kind of where you can look to make that little bit extra. If you're looking at um, a sustainability model and your player salaries and, and that sort of, you know, if whatever the, the team is making is going getting reinvested back into the team, the place you can make money is TV deals and sponsorship deals. And so... Um, the TV deals at this point are kind of a given, but I, I believe they're split up based on how much you're getting on TV. And if Arsenal continue to decline, they're not going to be on TV as much. Well, it, so, it, yeah, it, it really, it depends on a lot of things. There is a, a, a ranking in based on where you finish in the league. But I mean, the, the thing is, is the amount of money you make even for finishing in last place is just astronomical. Um, I, I, I saw that a menu was, or heard, that Man U was really expecting to be valued at about 10, 10 billion. Again, that's a big number, $10 billion after these TV deals. So that's kind of, I think, where the Cronkies are at is like, why should they accept a $3 billion, $4 billion bid when if they can stay in the league for two more years, they can get a, a $10 billion bid. Uh, and with the Daniel Danny Oak thing, the Daniel Ek uh, bid, you know, in reading the the, the papers, uh, again coming from the Swedish papers, they're they're talking a lot about that this might be a little bit of a smokescreen. That yeah, he's an Arsenal fan. There might be some reality base to us, but you know, he was on CNBC uh, last week uh, talking about uh, Spotify, which did not have a great quarter last quarter, and he spent most of the time talking about the bid. Um, he, the papers in Sweden were talking about he has a lot of this money that he wants to find a home for. And maybe Arsenal's the right place, but there's all a lot of other investments that he can be making. So I, I know it's exciting to have Dan, Danny Oak as our uh, new owner, and this might go into the next question, but I, I wouldn't hold my breath necessarily for it. Yeah. Uh, do you want to? Do you want to try to parse this next question? Because we can we can jump into more of this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to read the question from uh, Daniel uh, Moran. Moran, 
I always mispronounce his name. I'm sorry, Daniel. Uh, He's not trying to call you a moron. Yeah, I I'm really. Swear. It's just it, now it's just lodged <laughs> in my head, and so I and so like I look at it and I get that fear of I don't want to mispronounce it, and then I mispronounce it because I have the fear. So I apologize. <laughs> Maybe we'll uh, let a uh, Caleb read your questions. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's a it's a long one. Um, I thought about editing it down, but it it they make a lot of good points. So uh, buckle in. What is really an ideal ownership scenario? And are the Cronkies really that bad of owners? They're hands-off type who let Arsenal spend what we make. A self-sustaining model in contrast to the Man Shitty and Chelsea Sugar Daddy approaches. When Abramovich bought Chelsea and the Glaziers bought Manure, Manure and, the Hicks -Gillette, and the Hicks Gillette debacle in Liverpool, we held ourselves above, above all that meddling with managers buying unnecessary players, Shevchenko at Chelsea, and we're proud of being independent of such whims of mo mo mostly foreign owners who were detached from the history and traditions of English football and the club. Now it seems everyone wants a sugar daddy. Is that really the way to, we want to go? Or should we be focusing on hiring people who have expert talent in the management director CEO type roles rather than the Edu, Vinay, Arteta setup we have right now, all of whom are rookies in their role? I think we we kind of there's certainly a be careful what you wish for scenario that could play out here, um, but you know in the time since since Wenger we've seen kind of some different ideas of what what the modern football structure should be for a team. Um, and it's been a bit of a roller coaster as far as the the personnel at the top of the uh, the pyramid at Arsenal here. Um, the I guess the first first question are the Cron are the Cronkies really that bad of owners? Um, yes and no. Uh, that's not an easy thing to answer because. Um, they could be worse. They could be not investing in the team, not caring about the team, and really letting Arsenal go much further into decline. Um, I don't see them being so callous and disinterested that Arsenal is rapidly um, going downhill. They're slowly going downhill. There's no doubt about that. But I don't think... I don't think there's any intention on the Cronkies' part for them to fail. I think that they are trying to put things in place for Arsenal to succeed in a manageable way, in a way that isn't going to break the bank, in a way that is sustainable. Um, and whether that comes off or not is kind of up to chance a little bit and up to um, a little bit of uh, trial and error because we've seen we've seen guys come and go. We've seen Sin Leahy and Mislintat and um, you know uh, why am I blanking on his name? Uh, went to AC Milan, formerly ran the club. Dean. Hmm. Dean. No. Um, I really should have this more on t in the front of my mind, but. Uh, Anyway, Anyways. moving on. 
a guy who used to run the club and set all this up before he bailed on us. But, um, you know, we, we tried some different things and, and it's not to say that what we have now is the long-term solution. Um, but you got to start somewhere. And I think this trial and error and rotating cast of characters is only going to continue until something starts to work. Uh, it's, it's something that other teams have gone through and we're just kind of having to catch up a little bit and, and get on the same page as, as the successful teams. And, um, it's, it's not an overnight thing unless you have lots of money to spend to kind of paper over the cracks. And if you're not going to invest significantly in, in, um, the the players and the ma- uh, the management structure that is necessary to be successful, then it's it is going to be a little a little bit of a bumpy road trying to get things to work. Um, I get that Edu, Vinay, and Arteta are kind of the the budget solutions. You're you're kind of buying low and investing in in young young talent, young management talent. And hoping that one of one or all of them come find success, and uh, it might not work, or it might turn out that in three to five years, all three of these guys are are superstars. We don't know yet, and not everybody comes out and is just immediately successful. I think, especially when you're talking about Arteta, if if he came out and was um, you know, firing on all cylinders and had this team whipped into shape and wasn't able to turn um, shit into gold, it would be a miracle. I don't think that is normal. I don't think that it should be expected. I think that that's um, a miracle if it does happen for your team. You, you've stumbled into something amazing if you if you find a rookie coach that can do all that. But... um. I think that I don't think it was a bad decision to put these guys in, in, in the management roles that they're in. I think that we have to give that sort of thing time. I'm not, you know, despite what Rolf and I had in the ESL, I don't really hold him accountable for that. I think that's more of a ownership uh, decision that he kind of got. <laughs> we'll probably have to take the fall for a little bit and have to, and it sounds like he's had to make the rounds and apologize to a lot of other teams and people involved. And that sucks for him because he's really pretty much uh, only been in his role like a year and is already kind of having to eat shit and be the whipping boy for the Cronkies, which sucks for him. But that doesn't mean he's bad at his job. That doesn't mean um, uh, it was a mistake to put him in there. But, you know, it, I think... All that said, um, you know, where where do we want this team to go? We want them to be successful. I don't think that's going to be um, happening quickly unless there's significant investment coming in. Um, and I don't, I don't know if Eck is going to come in and be able to buy this team and invest significantly right off the bat or at all. I mean, we just don't know. He doesn't have the deep pockets that the Cronkies have. Yeah, I mean, I think 
it really comes down. It's a good. This is a good question by Daniel because I think it really comes down to a fundamental question, which is wh- what do we want out of this team, and what do we want as Arsenal fans? I remember when the Cronkies were fighting Usman off over control of the game, and mm-hmm. all of us Arsenal fans believe that Kroenke was the white, white knight saving us from Usman off and uh, turning us into a sugar daddy club. That was the the, the fans rejoice at the Cronkies taking control because we fought, felt that they were a safer pair of hands than a Russian oligarch, despite the fact that there's probably more evidence that Uzmanov was an actual Arsenal fan. Uh, but I think the question is, what is success and what do we want? If success is winning the Champions League, winning the league, and becoming a dominant team, I think the ship has sailed on a club like Arsenal being self-sustaining and doing that. I think the way that soccer is right now, and this is just cold hard facts, and I'm, I hope I'm not being Debbie, Debbie Downer Tim, uh, you need petrodollars, you need a, a just billions and billions of dollars just thrown into the team to do it. And, you know, you look at all these teams, these uh, Chelsea, these uh, Man City, PSG, all these teams that are in the, uh, you know, final stages of Champions League, all the teams that are in the top ends of the, the league winning titles, they are not making money. And making money isn't even a, a an idea in their head at this point. And if that's your idea of success, and if, is that if that's your idea of what Arsenal is, you 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 need a sugar daddy. And to be honest, Daniel Ek isn't going to be your sugar daddy. <laughs> I mean, he barely has enough together to buy the team, let alone bankroll in the you know billions and billions of dollars for payroll and for uh, buying players that we would need to get up ahead. And if you you look at it, you know, like everyone will point to Leicester and be like, well, Leicester won the league. That was like the flukiest of fluky years. And they people forget that they actually invested heavily in that team as well. The uh, the owners, the Thai owner who passed away, forgetting his name right now, but uh, he invested fairly heavily in that team as well. Uh, so you also, we may also have to be at a point where success may be being a self-sustaining team that has integrity. If you want to know my ideal ownership scenario, it is something like a, a Daniel Eck or someone who's a fan, someone who's a local owner, and us kind of internalizing the idea that we're, you know, not going to be able to 100% compete with, uh, you know, petrodollars or oligarchs spending billions of dollars into these play things. But we, we can still enjoy the team and, and hold our head high. And then, like, my absolute ideal situation is that everything goes to a 50 plus one rule and the fans own the team. But that that it would take basically a nationalization of soccer teams, which I don't think would uh, go over well. It's possible, but I don't think it'll go over well. So I think you have to just kind of ask yourself what is success and what you want to have as success. Let me ask you this is a hypothetical question, and this is something I was thinking about earlier today. Um, imagine you are a Man City fan. How would you feel about the success that they have found, you know, getting to the Champions League final? Do you do you feel like as a fan you would feel bad or even like there was any um do, do you feel like you you can fully get behind the team that has been given everything as far as the best coach, the best players and it's all been bought and paid for with billions and billions of dollars over the years 
would you feel the same way as if if you were a fan of Man City versus Arsenal who maybe tried to do it in a sustainable way? Like, does that matter to you at the end of the day and how you feel about that success? It, it, and this is where it gets to a personal thing, I think. It does matter to me. How we win is important to me. And I've, you know, the teams I've generally supported haven't been successful clubs. And I've... There, there is an integrity. There, there, I mean, there's a reason I'm enjoying watching. I know their arrival, but West Ham this year, I think, because West Ham are doing it right. I mean, then again, they it, it, there's a lot of money going to hands. It's not like anyone in the Premier League has clean hands. It's let's uh, not kid ourselves. But you know, and it's so much of a triumph when you live within your means and just do it. Whereas, it, and yeah, I, I think there is you know a majority of City fans will. Uh, you know, be fine with it. But I will also say, and this is 100% true, which is that majority of the City fans weren't around when they were losing. And I guarantee you that. that I know there are City fans that have been around, so like, I'm not trying to throw shade. But, you know, when I started watching Arsenal, you wouldn't see a City fan anywhere in the States. Mm-hmm. And Well, they were in like the third tier, I mean, yeah, 20 years ago. So. Exactly. So if you're talking about like City fans that have been around for a while, I think there's a lot of people that are... I, I don't think they're as embarrassed because they'll say that, you know, you know, Manu really started it in when they went through their, their dominant period and mm-hmm. that they're just catching up to, 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 uh, these, uh, big teams. But there, I, I think there is a little bit of, uh, shame and I, I don't know. And it could just be me projecting. Cause as I said, I, I, I would be much happier living within your means and playing fairly and, getting those drips of glory and really feeling like he earned it as opposed to being the team that has the biggest payroll winning, which is just, you know, what's happening now. So would you, would you advocate for, um, a salary cap or some sort of structure that forced teams to be on a more level playing field? Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I think, uh, if financial fair play was actually enforced in which you had to live within your means, I think that's, a, a fairer way of doing things. And I've, as I've discussed before on, on this podcast, there are like uh, problems with financial fair play, which is that if you're stuck as a smaller team, there's no way to catch up to the big teams now. And in a lot of ways, the cat's out sure. of the bag. But I think it would push it towards a fairer uh, way. I think salary caps, there's pluses and minuses on salary caps. We see it in the MLS. Uh, and I think also salary caps are unsustainable in a global market. Really, if you're in the global market for players, you just can't deal with a salary. Well, yeah, because everybody would have to be playing by the same rules or else leagues who decided not to have salary caps would dominate. And I mean, that's kind of what China was for a little bit until they realized that's unsustainable. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, I mean, I think there's there's an ideal system and I don't have the answers. I I just know that the way things are going now, it really, A, feels unsustainable and there's going to be a crash at some point that the billions of dollars that are coming into clubs are just not sustainable. And I think that's the pressure you're seeing and why you're seeing like the Super League kind of pop up its head because I've been saying for <laughs> as long as podcast has been going on, I know uh, Juventus is out of money. I know that Real Madrid and Barcelona are are hitting a wall with money and they're, they're going to be going through some dire times very much. They're going to be having to figure out how to get rid of some of these these players and these wages within the next year. So, but be like, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know the, the way to go about it, but the way it is now, I just, it, it's distasteful. I mean, I, would, I wouldn't 
personally I like to have a sugar daddy owner buy a bunch of players and we become the, the best team in the world based off that then you might as well just watch the globe trotters or something <laughs> yeah i guess if 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 daniel like somehow came in and, and had all the money in the world and was able to buy all the players that we wanted what even if he is an arsenal fan i don't know if that would feel like the arsenal way i think they would still for the fans who have been fans for a long time and and maybe have a a desire for to to go back to to something i don't know that maybe never existed i don't I, the arsenal way is maybe something that is ethereal and not real or is very different in, in depending on who you talk to i don't know if there is one arsenal way i think you talk to different players that have played for arsenal you talk to different coaches i think there's kind of an uh, a, mon- a a set of ideals that that wenger set in, set in place that uh maybe um are more idealistic than the, the reality of things um but you know if you're trying to have a code for your team and nobody else is playing by that set of rules you're kind of just setting yourself up for disappointment. Yeah, I mean, there there is that. Like, I I, I follow cycling quite a bit, and there's a period in the uh, '90s that everyone knows about with cycling, which basically everyone and their mother was using performance enhancing drugs while they were cycling. And mm-hmm. the, the excuse always is from the people who have admitted it is, well, everyone was doing it, so I was just doing it so I could be level with everybody mm-hmm. else. But it still doesn't make it better. I, I personally judge those those uh, riders who are using performance enhancing drugs because there were there are very few, but there were riders who didn't. And I think that's the same with uh, soccer in general, and especially the Premier League. When I look at it, I think I just because everyone else has a sugar daddy and is uh, getting injections of cash doesn't mean that it it, it makes it better. I don't know. I'm also. Sorry. We saw that with the, with the ESL. I mean, Arsenal were willing to go along with the crowd because even though they were doing the wrong thing, they didn't want to be left behind. I mean, peer pressure is a dangerous thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know that uh, when push comes to shove, whether those morals or, or that code actually exists within Arsenal as it is. Even if they try to you know bring in a, a coach like Arteta to try to reestablish some of that, it really does come from the top down. And if those ideals aren't uh, prevalent in the ownership, then, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if it would be any different with, with, with Daniel Eck. I don't know if he's, if, if being a fan is enough. I don't know if, if that's really going to create the atmosphere or get us back to where we should be or, there's just so many unknowns and I don't know if money solves all these problems without, a co- without somehow mar- marrying that with a code of ideals of what Arsenal should be. And I don't know how you codify that without having real meaningful involvement from the fans. And it sounds like Daniel Eck is open to that, but I think we as fans still have to come together and figure out what that means to us as well. Like, well, what do we want from this team in an ideal situation where we have the money to spend, but we also don't want to be Man City? Like, how do you find that happy middle ground where everything 
feels good, but we still are able to compete. I don't know if that actually works. Well, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. And I think one of the biggest things why the Cronkies are a bad owner and I'm, and you know, as much as we're kind of wishing washing, I do want to make a full statement that I don't think the Cronkies are a good owner. And I think one of the, uh, the, the, the ways that they, that ownership could change is that if, or go for the better is that they have more fan involvement that they do not just give lip service, but give real, just, you know, fan input, take into account the, uh, the, um, the, what is it? The fan collective, I'm forgetting the name of it. The supporters trust. Uh, if you, uh, actually not just you know sit there and give them a videotaped apology but literally go through and try and work out what arsenal is with the fans i think you would have a huge step in a a, a better ownership and i think maybe that is the one place where daniel might be better we don't know Mm. but uh, he seems at least to be a a little bit more uh willing to do that than the cronkies who, as I've said before, just destroyed St. Louis and ripped this a lot of the team there. I'm going to throw out an idea and you tell me what you think of this. What if they said to, to Eck, you can come in at, and, and buy a portion of Arsenal and we're going to put you in charge of remodeling what Arsenal is or at least getting Arsenal back to what Arsenal should be and you can be the face of that remodel and try to connect the fans back to this team do you think that would go a long way in getting the Cronkies who would still be majority owners do you think that would get them back into the fans good graces if they were more open to something like that I think it would go a very long way towards doing that I think, I mean, there is a bit of the of anti-Americanism in, in the, mm. the dislike for the Cronkies. And I am going to say it, that you notice that a lot of it has to do with your Americans coming in and don't understand the game. There's a lot of truth to what I said, but there is a lot of like, I think there's going to be no, <laughs> if the Cronkies are still involved, there's going to be still a large group of people that are just unhappy because they're just the Cronkies for a variety of reasons. Um, I think it would go a long way. I think the team was better run when you had a board of directors and you had multiple stakeholders all kind of working together as opposed to just a single ownership, which was, you know, how it was before the Cronkies bought up everything. Again, I think being able to have supporters own part of the club, which is one of the things that happened when the, uh, the Cronkies came in is it got rid of that changes things. So but it, you know, that's a long, long answer too. I think it would go a, a decent way, but I don't think it would fix everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'd be curious if they could ever find that sort of compromise, or if the Cronkies would be willing to give up any portion of the team in order to save face and try to build a bridge back to the fans. I just, I, I don't get the sense that they know how to create trust or create any connection with the fans they haven't really needed to with their other franchises. And uh, I think like as many people as they can get involved that have connections with the fans, like it's, you know, if they can get Eck on board and he can bring along Henri and Bergkamp and Vera, you know, 
get those those players as as kind of a a um a make good or, or a way to uh make the fans feel better about the ownership it, that might go a long way but i think it really at the end of the day it's all about the results and and what the product is on the field so it whatever the back of the house looks like doesn't matter as much as what the the on-field product is so if they can a lot of this can be forgiven if they can find a way to win and find a way to invest in this team and get the get the team playing like we feel they should i think that's the bottom line is i don't think anybody would care if they invested a billion dollars in the team and and we got to play the type of 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 game that we wanted to play i think we'd be all for that but we're so far from that that we are going to quibble and have a lot of rocky ground until things kind of settle and i i don't know if how long this battle for ownership is going to go or if it's even going to be a battle. But I, I see some rocky days ahead, especially because I don't think the fans have been appeased at all. I think there's still a, a lot of anger and a lot of um, unrest that still needs to um, settle out. So we'll see how this continues. I think there's there's still a, a lot to be done to fix things. Speaking of unrest, I think uh, Jonathan uh, Monias has a, a a question that kind of goes on this, and it's an audio question, if I remember. Yes. So let's let's listen to what Jonathan has sent us. Hey guys, this is Jonathan Monilis. Uh There's a lot of drama around the soccer world right now, and uh, a lot of people are like jumping ship on their teams. I know I'm probably not going to be watching the World Cup this year. Uh, and I just wanted to know if there was anything uh, that was like a line in the sand or like a bridge too far. Um, if there's anything that the club could do that would make you stop supporting Arsenal. I'm assuming something pretty big, seeing as you have podcasts dedicated to Arsenal. But yeah, is there anything? And if so, what is it? All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, so yeah, I mean, basically his question is, is there a line that Arsenal could cross that would make us not fans? I, I, um, I really considered it, you know, I mean, I, I, this was something that crossed my mind with the super league. If, if that had come to fruition, like what, what would I have done as a fan? And it's really tough. I think we are kind of (laughs) in a, a little bit of a marriage with, with, with Arsenal just because we have chosen to have this podcast, but because I, I think it would be a bigger deal if we just said, okay, well, we're just going to walk away from the podcast. We're going to walk away from this team. I think that's, um, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to imagine that. And I think like the, uh, the thing, like when I think back to when I started watching Arsenal, they were, they were kind of, they were coming off the invincible season. Um, you know, I, I, I think I started watching them probably in 05, 06. So they, they still had kind of the afterglow of the invincibles and uh, a lot of, a lot of shine left on them. And it's, you know, when you're picking a team, it's really easy to pick a team that's successful and harder to stick with a team when that success fades away. But to me, when you pick a team, you're, you're in it you're in it for through thick and thin and despite what 
the Cronkies might do, or, you know, if it's the Super League or whatever it is, I feel like I, I am with this team till the end. And I have to kind of separate out ownership from players, from coaches, from all these, you kind of have to compartmentalize a little bit to really, uh, keep keep the love going <laughs> with the team because it's not always going to be easy and it's not always going to be fun to watch um you know teams fail <laughs> you know, on a regular basis or not reach the heights that they once did so um to me i kind of think it's a it's always a long game it's never it's never about what they're doing right now it's kind of what have they done in my lifetime how have they brought me joy how they brought me pain and for the most part i think the joy always the scale is always tipped in the in the joy column but if it, it got to the point maybe where i just was not having fun with it anymore and wasn't able to find joy in in the wins or anything like that i would consider it but i think that would be very i don't know if there would be one event i think it would be kind of more of a feeling of just not having fun with it anymore if I'm not having fun, then what's the point? Yeah, I mean, I think the my answer is the the quick answer is no. That I don't think there is a line in that I consider myself always have or I always be a fan because you can't take away my history of the team. Mm. You can't take away that moments of joy, and you know, like I'm like I'd never ever jump ships or anything like that. But I think. It, there, there, there could be points where I stop paying as much attention. I think mm. that is a very real chance. And really, it's not necessarily success on the field. As I said, I'd be very much more content to have a mid-table team that I felt was playing a fair game. Uh, I think really it comes down to an integrity type of thing that if Super League was very, is a very close deal, like it, it is, it's something where I... I mean, I probably wouldn't have watched the Super League if it existed in the the format they were talking about straight up. I just, I think it was like, hey, I I would think it was a boring competition in general, just as a a soccer fan, not as an Arsenal fan. And B, as an Arsenal fan, just how gross it was. Like, there'd be a part of me that just would want nothing to do with it. And I can see that happening more than anything else. That just like uh, the, the passion dies out, the the will to wake up on a Saturday morning at four o'clock in the morning to watch a game is going to be less. And I mean, the other thing is just technical aspects of it. And I have my, my first Swedish team that I followed was Vesta for Lunda and they will still have a very close part. They were the team I watched when I was in Sweden. They are unfortunately now in the third division of Swedish soccer, which is semi-pro. They were at one point in the eighth division. So they've, managed to come back a little bit but i like i literally just can't follow them there's no way to watch them on tv there's no way to you know like even the swedish papers don't cover them so uh you know there's that technical aspect which but again none of it doesn't mean i'm not a fan it just means the the passion's gone out a little bit and that's the scary thing is like if a team just makes your passion disappear it's it's it's, sometimes it's hard to get back you know yeah, I, I I think back a kind of a little bit on my um, my Sounders journey, mm-hmm. and it's a different. It's a it's a very different thing because it, the comparing the hometown 
club to my chosen club is, um, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a different scenario a little bit. Like I've never seen Arsenal in person. That's crazy to think. And I like, I had Sounder season tickets early on and was at a lot of games and I was very passionate and you, you more so, Mm -hmm. I mean, as far as how much, how involved you are with the team and, and, and being a fan. And I think it's, um, for me, it's waned a little bit just because I can't be at every game and I can't be as involved and as passionate, but at the end of the day, I'm still a, a, a big Sounders fan. I still try to watch every game, but I do think like just life has an effect on on how much effort you can put into being a fan. Um, and like I've I've kind of like chosen to be a next level Arsenal fan when we when we started doing this podcast. Like I think that has forced me to watch more games. Has forced me to be more involved. Has forced me to um, dig in a little bit more. And, uh, I, I, if, if I wasn't having fun with that, I wouldn't do it. I think that would, it's, it's, it, I mean, the podcast is work at the end of the day, but I mean, it, if I wasn't having fun with it, it's, um, I wouldn't do it. I think that like, I think no matter what, what team you follow, you have to be getting more, more joy than pain or else it's, it's not, not worth it. Like there's other things you could be doing with your time. And so that, I think that's the, the calculus you have to put into it. Um, no matter what, what team or sport you follow. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think you, you hit the nail on the head that if it, if it, if it starts becoming way more pain than joy, there are better things I could be doing in life. Um, but I, I think you also brought up a very interesting point. It's a very interesting point for us as, uh, fans of Arsenal from afar, that it is so different being a game day, day in, day out, week in, week out, going to games, going to away games fan. You have a very different connection to the club than we'll ever have. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And some of our listeners have have that connection. And, you know, but I think a large majority of us in the, the Northwest don't have that same connection. So it feels feels different. I think and I think there that might be a lot of the dissonance between what different expectations of what an ideal ownership is. The feeling I get from just, you know, lurking on social media is it's it tends to be the people that aren't the game going fans that want the sugar daddy owner that want to 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 do it. Whereas the people day in, day out, they know that they're gonna go to Arsenal when it's a third league club, you know? Like mm-hmm. they know that they're they will always be going to Arsenal. Their kids will always be going to Arsenal and they don't have to rely on them being on Peacock or on a NBCSN to, to watch the games. They, they can just walk down the street and do it. And it's, it's interesting. I'd love to hear back from uh, our listeners about their, the, the differences in this connection. If they, if they feel the difference in it, or if they, if they feel that it's no different. Yeah. I've always felt like not, not as like an imposter or anything like that, but like, I, I do feel like I am a, different fan being far away and not being able to go to games and, and not having that, um, local level of connection. Um, but it almost feels like more personal to me because I chose this team. Like I chose to put the effort and the time. It wasn't something that was just like, Oh, well that's, I live in London and that's my team. You know, like I, I, 
something connected with me that made me choose this team and I chose to stick with it over all these years. And so like, to me, that is important. And I hold that dearly because like, that's something I've like cultivated and developed over 15 years or whatever it's been, you know, it's, it's, it's been something that like I've had to put effort into, you know, it's not just something that happens because of my location. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question. I know I've told this story. I don't know if I've told it on the pod before, but I remember, so I, I have been, I went to the old Highbury and could not afford to get a ticket in. And I've, you know, walked around the Emirates again, could not get a, afford to get a ticket in. So I went and watched the game at the uh, Gunner's Pub, which is just down the street. And I remember the whole time I was there, I had to, as a, as a soccer fan not from London and specifically not from the United States I felt like the whole time I was there I had to prove that I knew as much or more than anybody else about Arsenal or they'd just dismiss me you know like I had to pronounce the names right I had to know who scored what goal and what year know the history know 89 even though I never watched a game in 89 and that (laughs) sort of thing and the difference between that and then I remember going to my first Sounders game and just stepping onto the, the into the the it wasn't Century League Field at the time. I forget what it was called, Royal Brougham Park. And I, I remember just realizing that I didn't didn't have to explain to anyone why I was there. I didn't have to prove anything. It was just natural. And I think there is a level of difference in that, you know. That, uh, but I, th- I think it sometimes can push fanaticism in, in a whole other way because you have to prove when you're you're supporting a team that's not from your local area, you know. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 that's where I feel like I'm, um, like, oh, am I, am I really a fan? Because I don't, I don't have like a deep historical knowledge of Arsenal. Like I, my, my knowledge is like basically the last 20 years of, of Arsenal or, you know, I, I know of other stuff, but like my personal connection to it is the last 20 years. And, and I'm not really, I've never been one to like, want to um revel in what arsenal was or has done it's like to me it's about what is arsenal doing today like that's that's where i really find the joy is like what's happening now and what's coming and that's that's where i like to kind of live and keep my um uh, that, that's where I, I i kind of think the podcast is is really about is we're, we're not i mean we we kind of look back a little bit like we delved into the 1800s today, but like, I think our, our bread and butter is, is looking, looking ahead or, you know, like being current. And, um, I don't know if, you know, some people might think that's like, I'm a, uh, not a true fan or, you know, might think I'm less of a fan or might even think that because of the fact that I'm not in London or from London or have ever been to London. (laughs) So, um, I don't, I don't try to think about that too much. I really just try to be the, be the fan that I, I am and, and take that as good enough because I know there are plenty of people out there who are just like me and that's, that's okay. Yeah. You know, the, the, the word I, I, I've seen it, this happen, the, the music scene, when you talk about like, I listen to a lot of metal and you have like these bands and like, there's these people that like try and, uh, tell you you're not really a, a metal fan because you're not listening to this band or whatever. And the word is gatekeeping mm-hmm. and I mm-hmm. gatekeeping is just a, something I just dislike. I'm much more about, Oh, you like this? I do too. Let's find out why we like it together and go on a journey as opposed to try and like, I don't know, show off that, you, you know, you're, you're a far superior human being. Cause I, you know, 
as I said, I, I can't compete. I've never seen them live either. I didn't, I didn't even go out to Colorado when they played in Colorado. Uh, I've been lucky enough to go to London, but as I said, like I didn't get it in and I don't know, like it's, for me, it's a, it's much more constructive and much more interesting to find our commonalities as people who like the same thing, as opposed to try and figure out why we're superior beings. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to, we've, this podcast has already gotten (laughs) extra long, but um, I think the thing that like really made me feel connected and really, really felt like a real Arsenal fan was when we went to Kenya Mm -hmm. and we could connect with people who also probably have never been to London and still were super passionate about Arsenal and, and, you know, like, or, or just the sport in general. And, you know, we could have banter and, um, and, and share the joy and pain and all that stuff with people who equally were, you know, distant from London and, and, but still had as much love for the game. And I just, I thought that was like one of the best, best things I've ever experienced in my life was just running into people and talking uh, even a little bit about Arsenal and, and soccer and having that connection in, in a completely different country. And really that was, I, I don't know, it just, it made it feel like, Oh yeah, this is why these global sports are really important and special. And it's why I continue to follow it because it is, it's kind of, it's something that's bigger than me, which is cool. Like I never, I even like, I don't know, the, the, the Sounders feel like they're local and they're special because they're my team and they're my hometown team, but Arsenal feels like I'm part of something much bigger. So that, that is di- is special in a different way. Yeah. I mean, no matter where you are in the world, you, you when you faint, meet another Arsenal fan, you can uh, commiserate together. And it's a, it, it is a special bond of like uh, realizing you're both Arsenal fans. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, okay. We've gone super long and, um, we could touch on fantasy or we could just end, end this episode. <laughs> I don't, if okay. there's anybody left, I don't think they're interested in fantasy. Right <laughs> I hope there's people left. Cause I feel like this is our, this is our most honest talk about what Arsenal means to us. I think ever. So of course we saved up for the like minute one third or one hour 30 of our podcast. <laughs> well, I hope, hope, uh, at least, uh, Jonathan Molina's or Molina's safer is his question. We have one listener. That's great. Um, well, anyway, thank you all. If you have stuck with us this long, thank you for listening to this ex- extra special episode. <laughs> um, if you, if you haven't done so already, go ahead and subscribe to our podcast, wherever you pick it up, uh, whether that be Spotify, Apple, Google, Go uh, subscribe, hit that button so we come to your your device of choice every week. And if you've done that already, uh, leave us a review. Let other people know how much you like us and uh, how much you don't like us. Whatever whatever you feel, let other people know uh, and just get the word out there um, with your, your feelings. <laughs> um, if you haven't, if you haven't followed us on twitter we are at w of n london you can send us questions uh, for our next episode and if you want more than 140 characters you can also do west of north london at gmail.com send us an email send us your recommendation for books or beers or 
whatever is on your mind, send it our way. We'd love to hear from you. And we do have a YouTube channel. We do post there, uh, whether it's video or just audio, it's on YouTube for your convenience. So um, if podcasts aren't your thing, although I don't know if you've listened this long, they're probably your thing. But, you know, uh, if, if you'd like to watch us or have YouTube on in the background while you work, you can go to our YouTube channel, subscribe there, like our videos. That would be a huge help. And uh, last but not least, got to thank Bobcat for their theme song. Uh, B-O-B-C.A-T is their website. Go check out No Course to Follow. Their latest album is there and much, much more. So that's the place to find them. And I think that is more than enough for this week. So as always. See you at the next gun show.